Easter has come and gone. I know because I kept the beautiful bouquet of lilies that my mom sent me for as long as even one flower had any life in it, but a few days ago I finally had to toss it. I don't know about you, but we've used up all the last of the hard-boiled eggs, and the world has definitely moved on. As I was reminded when I went shopping the very next day, the stores wanted me to be ready for Mother's Day and even summer. Has our Easter joy come and gone as well? I mean, it's very easy to be uplifted on Easter. Who couldn't respond to the music and the flowers? And you've got beautiful clothes and chocolate. Don't forget the chocolate. And the weather even cooperated so beautifully this year. But as surely as the kids' sugar high crashes out on Monday, did our spiritual high bottom out when the holiday ends? So just back to real life now. I want us to ask what difference it makes to call ourselves an Easter people. What does it mean to be an Easter people? I don't want, and I suspect you don't either, easy or flippant answers to that question. Those don't fly in the hard places of life, places where children can't get clean water, in the halls of the pediatric cancer ward, in bombed-out churches of Egypt, in starving Sudan. And even though the news will use those stories to manipulate us, I'm convinced that those places are not so far removed from my or your ordinary lives as they might seem. Those stories stir up our deep fears and offer us only the cold comfort of saying, eh, I'm glad we don't have it quite that bad yet. So today, if you are desperate to know how the story of the empty tomb meets the desolate places in your story, you are in good company. We are gathered together here today precisely to wonder at that. To help us, I want to turn to the letter we call 2 Corinthians, part of a long correspondence between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. Of course, here at Lettered Streets, we've spent a fair bit of time with this first century church at Corinth, finding them an exuberant and temperamental and less than mature bunch, much like us, struggling to follow Jesus in the real world and getting it wrong half, okay, maybe more than half the time. One sore point between Paul and that church was their assumption that because they had trusted in Jesus and even been filled with the Spirit, they had it made. They were going to be filled with wisdom and walk in victory and enjoy these gifts of power in the Spirit. And some of them maybe even thought they couldn't do any wrong. These Corinthians, so self-confident, often challenged Paul in his authority as their spiritual leader or father, the one who had led them to faith. They didn't like being told how to shape up. Know anyone who does? Do you? Right. And at the time, they didn't think he talked or looked or acted like a real apostle should. In fact, by the time Paul wrote this portion of 2 Corinthians, they seemed to be particularly attracted by some other apostles who seemed to better fit their expectations of what victorious living looked like. So I want you to note this in the passage we're about to read, because when Paul says we, it isn't just some general all of us we. He's actually speaking quite personally. He's laying out his own approach to ministry and in places just defending his integrity. 
But I think it's precisely in his personal vulnerability that he gives us a glimpse of what a people shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus could look like. So let's read from the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians together. It's on page 1,159 in your pew Bible. Please stand. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The word of the Lord. Sit down. Lord, help us rightly to understand and to claim for ourselves your word today. May you bless these words and touch our hearts. Amen. Well, this phrase, Easter people in a Good Friday world, I have to confess, is not my own. You may have heard it elsewhere, but it is what I always think of when I read this passage. When my dad died much too early, and some weeks later, I sat with my pastor and I said, this sucks. He said, yes, it does. We're an Easter people, 
but we're still living in a Good Friday world. Now, he'd been saying that for years, but it meant a great deal more to me at that point. And now, today, having something I didn't then, which is the internet, I discovered that as good pastors do, he was actually quoting someone else. <laughs> the saying actually comes from the humorous author and speaker Barbara Johnson. Has anyone read one of her books? Perhaps plant a geranium in your cranium? Uh, the phrase is the title of the last chapter in her book, Splashes of Joy in the Cesspools of Life. She certainly had a way with words, didn't she? The passage shows me that Paul was quite well acquainted with those cesspools of life, and yet, as he twice repeats, we do not lose heart. How can that be? I can't unpack everything in this text, but I'd like to look at three characteristics that I think define an Easter people. Easter people have received mercy. Easter people suffer, and Easter people shine. The very first one comes from that first verse. Easter people have received mercy. The NIV that we just read doesn't quite capture it when it says, um, through God's mercy. More literally, it's having this ministry, just as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. So it's a verb in the Greek, which means to show mercy, and this is the passive voice. We are shown mercy. We are the object of mercy. It's still a word we think we need to unpack a little bit. When we hear mercy, I think we might think something sort of soft and sentimental, like pity, um, the opposite of justice. But in Paul, this word mercy often translates the Hebrew word hesed, like God's goodness or kindness, his covenant faithfulness to his people. It's actually a fundamental aspect of God's character. So when Moses goes up on the mountain and he asks to see God, God passes by him, God proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, actually like Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy, chesed, and truth. God's chesed is so much more than just pity. It is actually his strength in action, rescuing his people from helplessness and bondage. So, Right after coming through the Red Sea out of Egypt, Moses and Miriam's song celebrates God's mercy. They say, in your loving kindness, that's your hesed, you have led the people that you have redeemed. In your strength, that's parallel, you have guided them to your holy habitation. Shout it from the mountains. Paul was one who knew God's rescuing mercy firsthand. The whole opening paragraph while he is alluding to Moses on the mountain, it also unmistakably invokes his own conversion experience. That time where he was on the road, dead set on persecuting and throwing in prison a bunch of Christians in the city of Damascus, and God literally stopped him in his tracks. When we hear the radiance of the gospel and the, the radiance of God's glory, we can't help but think of that dazzling light, which literally blinded him. So that for three days, he experienced in his body the reality of his spiritual condition. He was blind, as he says here, is what those of this age are with respect to things of God. And his sight is only restored to him when Ananias, a fellow believer, obediently laid hands on this persecutor for him to receive the Holy Spirit. Paul never forgets this. 
he would keep calling himself the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. So I think Paul knew beyond any doubt that his ministry was not energized by his own fitness or faithfulness or ability to keep the law or anything other than the call of God and the power of the Spirit within him. And then today we've heard another story about receiving mercy. See, if Paul was a persecutor, an enemy of the church of God, then there's Simon Peter, Jesus' closest friend. So devoted. Oh, Peter, so confident. When Jesus predicted that his disciples would all abandon him, do you remember how hotly Peter denied it? Oh, even if all fall away on account of you, he said, I never will. But on the night of Jesus' arrest and trial, even as Monday Thursday revolved into Good Friday, Peter indeed denied him three times, denied he even knew Jesus. And then when Jesus looked up at him, that failure at a time of crisis was just devastating to Peter. You know, I think I might know a little bit of how Peter felt. In my first year of graduate school, I took a seminar in post-colonial theory at a big state university. Uh, that's difficult stuff to begin with, so I could barely keep up with the readings and felt over my head in everything. But one spring day, our professor decided to start class by asking, somewhat ironically, I think, so, did anyone celebrate Easter this week? And as the whole class kind of looked around the table curiously, like, oh, no, just detached curiosity, like, I didn't have it in me to put up my hand. I would have been the only one. And that bothered me for a long time, right? What, what kind of a Christian am I if I couldn't even risk just a little embarrassment, honestly? I felt confused and inadequate. In John 21, I think we find the disciples feeling kind of at a loss similarly. They have met the resurrected Jesus in Jerusalem, and now they're back in Galilee, an undetermined amount of time later, they seem uncertain as to what to do next. So they do what they know. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Right, maybe they were just hungry. But in spite of that, even though this is their trade, their efforts have been absolutely unproductive. It's been a long night, and they caught nothing, not even one fish. Can you imagine how that compounds Peter's sense of failure at this point? And then Jesus appears. As the text says, this is the third time he had made himself apparent to the disciples after his resurrection. Clearly, their relationship after the resurrection is a little different. They didn't go back to just hanging out together all the time. And this particular encounter seems to be especially meant for Peter. After they've eaten together, Peter, Jesus asks Peter three times to affirm his love. And he says, do you love me more than these? Okay, it's a little bit unclear what the reference is, but probably, do you love me more than these other disciples around us do? In other words, it's that self-revealing question that God's mercy puts to each of us. He's saying, Peter, are you as loyal and zealous and devoted as you claimed? And a chastened Peter just says, you know that I love you. Jesus repeats the question, well, why? What is this? On the third time, it becomes clear. See, Peter is hurt or grieved by that third time because he realizes that by asking three times, Jesus is recalling his three 
betrayals. Jesus knows his weakness and his pride and how far his ability falls short of his desire to devote himself to his Lord. And yet, with each question, Jesus extends mercy to Peter. The threefold uh, question is not meant to humiliate him, but to restore him. He says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. So like Paul, Peter's commission to serve God's people is pure mercy. He knows now that anything he'll do for Jesus from this point on is grounded not in his own faithfulness or zeal, but in God's unfailing and covenant love. Easter people must begin at Good Friday. Because we are people who desperately need to be rescued. We couldn't fulfill our side of the covenant. Jesus has represented us. He offered the perfect sacrifice for sin in our place. He performed the perfect obedience that we couldn't, no matter how much we wanted to. So to receive mercy is to let go of our own fruitless efforts, efforts to prove ourselves, efforts to be better than, to deserve approval, And instead, we receive a fullness of love, a faithfulness we could never, ever earn. See, Easter people then have no shame, only hearts set free from fear and striving. We're caught up in that hallelujah song of grateful praise, never tired of looking at the face of our beloved, never tired of hearing him call our name. Doesn't that sound wonderful? It's such a privilege to be God's resurrection people. But there is that second part, right? We are still Easter people in a Good Friday world. So the second truth of this text is that Easter people will suffer. Here's Peter, who had always claimed he was so willing to suffer for Jesus. And Jesus so tenderly restores him and offers him that opportunity to affirm his love and then tells him straight away that this calling will lead to suffering. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands Someone else will tie you, carry you where you don't want to go. Jesus is, in one sense, assuring Peter he will suffer faithfully this time, even to the point of death. Early church tradition says that Peter was martyred in a persecution under Nero, probably by also being crucified. And so that is what Jesus calls Peter to when he says, finally, follow me. I think there are two mistakes we could make when it comes to this idea of suffering. One would be to think that the pain and violence and terror and starvation we witness in the world is all there is. That's just how the world is. And I think that would lead us to despair. Many people it has. But the other is to think that suffering is an illusion. It's all in your head. You'll even find some Christians who might try to tell you this. You may feel then that if you're not living in complete prosperity, health, and happiness, your faith must be deficient. You need to believe harder. I say don't listen to them for a moment. Paul's testimony in this passage leaves very little room for the idea that knowing God means always living in suffering-free kind of victory. By this time in his ministry, Paul truly knew what it was to suffer for the gospel. He was living life on the road, alternately welcomed and thrown out of town. He had been imprisoned, beaten, stoned by a mob and left for dead. So I think in one sense, he could pretty literally say, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Paul consistently associates bodily suffering with participation in 
Jesus' example. Like when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. So for many of us, suffering for Christ might be a little abstract. Some of us might even say, well, <laughs> I only wish I were suffering for Christ. Wouldn't that sound noble? Quite admirable, but my suffering is just the bone-weary fatigue of a parent who has been woken up every night for several years in a row. And my torturers are not Roman guards, they're just these very small people <laughs> who are actually a gift of God, but it still feels like suffering. Or we might say, I'm out of a job. It's not because I took a stand for Christ, it's just because they closed down our branch. So what does it mean? always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. I mean, here we are, clearly, living and breathing. Okay, kids, let's check. Everyone else can, too. Take a breath. Let it out. Raise your hand if you're still alive. Good, you're even awake. <laughs> no, perhaps it would help if we said Easter people are living a Jesus kind of life. I really think if we identify at all with the suffering of Jesus, it's only because he first identified with us. And so every pain you experience, whether it seems obviously related to your faith or not, is in a sense wrapped up into the dying of Jesus. See, do you maybe suffer some physical pain in your body? Jesus did. Maybe you know what it is to be hungry or thirsty. Not as likely here, but you might. Jesus did. More likely, have those you loved betrayed and disappointed you? People laughed at you? You offered them your truest self only to be rejected? Jesus knows that too. Perhaps you're grieving the loss of someone who was dear to you. You know, because we see things from this side of the resurrection, I think we sometimes forget that going to death meant the end of Jesus' significant relationships from a human perspective. It's like a real death. You know, at the cross, he takes care to say to his mother, here, you go with this disciple and you take care of her because it's not going to be the same even in the resurrection. So just so, even though we know it's temporary, our separation from those we've loved in death is real and grievous. Or maybe you failed to see your dreams bear fruit. Has your mission been misunderstood by the people you tried to get on board? Again, we focus so much on Jesus' obedience to God's mission that we forget he had a disappointment that Israel did not respond as he wished to, to uh, grasp why he'd come. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you under my wing and you weren't willing. So he knows that pain too. So I think you could say, Good Friday sums up the world in which we live quite completely. And I don't think we need to try to sort out those troubles too carefully, like these because of bearing witness to Christ, and okay, these are just because of my own sin, and these are just the result of being inhabitants of this fallen world. The reason I think that is that no matter what comes our way, we walk through it obediently for the same reason that Jesus did. The heart of our approach to suffering is always love. That's what Paul is always reminding those unruly converts at Corinth. Everything he does, even getting involved in these painful conflicts, is for your sake, he says. 
See, if we were unwilling to endure the pain of relationships and their losses, we could close off our hearts to each other, just curl into ourselves. But by remaining open, we inevitably risk the vulnerability of love. There may even be someone listening for whom it often seems like too much just to face another day of living. The courage and the faith to say yes to life, that too is out of love. Kathleen Norris recognizes this and she says, as love takes us on a harrowing journey, even to hell and back, we may find the path arduous, but remain convinced that it is the only one worth taking. On this journey, we are following Jesus. Simply by becoming human for our sakes, became vulnerable to death as we are. That's why Christmas and the Incarnation is directly so tied to Easter. Just to be willing to give it all up, all for love's sake became poor, he was going to be subject to our world. To manifest God's life in such a world would lead inevitably to Good Friday. And for love's sake, he was willing. I do want to say that if we follow Jesus on this path, I think we will find one more source of pain that could perhaps be called a specifically Christian suffering. It's this. I think those who hope in Jesus will feel even more keenly that the world is amiss. Like, we will forever be out of sync with our times. When we start realizing we can't be complicit in structures of injustice and violence, that's going to cost us something. We're going to grieve as Jesus' heart did when we see blindness in so many people just racing towards destruction and trying to numb themselves along the way. We're going to grieve when we see how instead of cherishing and stewarding creation, we've just broken and devastated it. When we see these sicknesses in the world around us, even in our hearts, it pains us. We're seeing what the God of this age is up to with increasing clarity, and we reject those schemes. But if we stand up and name those evils in our society, they might reject us. So in fact, we might suffer more as Easter people than we did as children of this world. Now wait a minute, you may be saying, if you're trying to convince me that this Jesus life is really worth it, you are not doing a very good job. All right, I have been holding out on you. Because the truth is, Paul never talks about participating in Christ's sufferings without also speaking of the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? So it does mean we just patiently slog through the cesspools of this life, just waiting it out until we fly away to be with Jesus. Oh, glory. Well, yes, there is before us an expectation of an incredibly glorious future. So that's why Paul says that in the light of the resurrection, everything he has gone to up to this point just adds up to what he calls momentary and light affliction. Mm, okay, nice, Paul. Compared to the weight of glory that is to come. Weight of glory. Sounds like a strange phrase. There Paul goes again, thinking in Hebrew and speaking in Greek. In Hebrew, glory is kavod, um, weightiness, honor, respect, what you take seriously. It's kind of a reversal of our usual way of thinking Especially if you think of this issue of pain and suffering. I don't know about you, but after I read the news, I might go away feeling, the word I would use is like heavy. 
at all that's going on in the world. I got a text from a dear friend a continent away the other night, and she'd just been diagnosed with lymphoma. That felt heavy. But Paul says, in contrast to what awaits us, those heavy troubles are just trivial, light. So great is the glory to come. He actually has to try to improvise this crazy, redundant expression, like exceeding excess, using the same word twice. Hyperbolic glory. But there's something else about the word glory. Just as often as Scripture uses that to describe, like, what's, in, what's ahead, what's coming for us, our eternal life in God's presence, just as often, or maybe more, it's used to describe God's presence with us in the here and now. Like this, Solomon built a beautiful temple, gold and ivory and just everywhere, but it was empty until the glory, the kavod of God, filled it with this unbearable light. And that's what the Gospel of John is riffing on when he says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So Paul is talking about that glory too, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, kids, if you're still with me, I need your help. Okay, if you had this incredible, precious treasure, right, like the most weighty and valuable and serious kind of thing you can imagine, practically glowing with its own internal light, think Indiana Jones here, where would you put it? What would you put it into? What do you think, Ruth? A safe. Okay, that's good. Yeah, we saw the Queen's jewels in London, and they are behind, like, foot-thick walls in that vault. Yes, definitely. Anything else? What would contain something like that? You'd have, like, a suitcase with, like, the locks everywhere. Change to your leg. Like, you cannot get this thing away from me. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You'd bury it. Okay. Why? Just to keep it, keep it safe? Then they wouldn't find it. Okay. Okay. If you wanted to display it, well, make like, like, treasure chest. Buried. Yes. Seems like something like that would belong in an incredibly glorious temple or a king's palace or a treasure chest or locked up safe like the queen's jewels on velvet behind glass casings you can't touch it would you put your treasure in a bunch of clay pots that's what paul says that god has done it's like also translated earthen vessels so it's just pottery like Every time an archaeologist goes to dig up an ancient site, they have to go through dozens of shards of this stuff because it's so common and it's so inexpensive, so ordinary and pretty fragile, so it just breaks. Nothing special. That's where God chooses to dwell. Like, we are the temple, as he told the Corinthians a couple times. This is here and now kind of talk. Paul is all, that the life of Christ may be manifested in our, like our mortal body. Yes, our resurrection body, but like this body, the one subject to death. Our present selves, as flawed and as fragile as we know them to be, are nevertheless God's chosen 
vessel for holding the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Absolutely nobody could mistake that power for something that we naturally possess. So on our own, we're just so much throwaway pottery, but Easter people have received mercy. On our own, we would be crushed and broken by life, but Easter people suffer patiently as we follow Jesus. And here's the own truth, third truth. On our own, we would be blindly trying to find our way, but Easter people shine in a Good Friday world. What does this life of Jesus manifested in our mortal bodies look like? Ah, there's the rub. See, I don't claim to know exactly what this life will look like for you. I think that would presume on what Nowen calls this phrase I love, your sacred relationship with God's creative spirit. I do know that Easter people are people of the spirit. Easter is incomplete without Pentecost. We're getting there in a few weeks. We're in that in-between time. But you can't take the one from the other because the spirit is not an add-on or like an option, a box you can check. Spirit is God's very presence indwelling us, even enabling us to believe. In these mortal bodies, the spirit is the deposit, like the little down payment on the big inheritance, which is our participation in God's future. So in that life of the spirit, really, the particulars will be unique to you, as unique as finding Jesus on the beach with some fish saying, come and have breakfast. But I can offer a few hints. One is, resurrection life is full of newness. You'll notice that Paul explicitly ties that spirit shining in our hearts to God's original act of creation. And in chapter 5, he gets even more explicit, like this. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Just like that. Not he is a new creation, but like, new creation. Right? And in verse 16 here, Eugene Peterson translates it. Even though on the outside, it looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. Of course, in his grace, as surely as Peter confronted, or Jesus confronted Peter's pride and self-reliance, there will be a cutting away of the old life, the old patterns and habits. Whatever it is that we're using to deaden the pain and not have to face love, we've been running away from real life, whether it's with chemicals or with overwork or even with too much candy crush. We find the courage from the Spirit to face reality in that light of the glory of God. So resurrection means steady transformation. Okay, like, that's great. Peter, big apostle. Paul, big apostle. But me? Like, isn't this a passage about, you know, Paul's calling to full-time ministry? Well, here's where Paul casts the we in a way that specifically includes all of us the very last verse of the chapter before. It goes like this. All of us, nothing between us and God. Our face is shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. As we undergo that transformation, resurrection life allows us to live in authenticity. 
This is where Paul's going, I think, in that first paragraph. To know ourselves as those who've received mercy, and to rely on the Spirit's power in our weakness, it means that we are so authentic. We witness the truth of the gospel to the world around us with no need for gimmicks, no distortions, no manipulations. When we speak, when we do speak, our speaking just overflows from our conviction that we're being transformed. Finally, resurrection life is the ground of a true community. So we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world, but that's not just like people, the plural of person. It's like people in the biblical sense, a people, right? A nation, a family, a called out community. Um, as Howard Wass observes, being a people made up of those who are not afraid of death now. In fact, we don't even fear our own insignificance. It means that we can show the world a new way to be authentically human. And this is so desperately needed in our society right now. We're so fractured. We have no idea how to reach out to someone who's really different than us without making them over into our own image. But people formed by the story of Jesus is like this radically new thing. We don't have to actually like, defend ourselves against each other. We can accept someone's otherness as a gift, he says, rather than a threat. If we could do that, that would really shine. Newness and transformation and authenticity and community, all for others' sake. Everything we do and everywhere we are, we are more authentically ourselves than ever, but not to put ourselves on display, but just Christ within us. That is our, as Paul says, ministry. That is a, our service. So, this is an old letter streets thing, but every believer, whatever the circumstances of your life, you are in full-time Christian service, just as you replicate the life and death of Christ for others. So this word, um, to manifest the glory, Paul uses it in verse 2, and he says it again in verse 10. And it's exactly the same as the Gospel of John used for all those times that the resurrected Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. Like, we manifest, make known, make visible the truth of Jesus. So having received mercy and having participated in Christ's sufferings, and having been filled with the treasure of the Spirit, you might actually say, we are an Easter people, an Easter people, for this Good Friday world.